What does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. In the next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to real life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. We decided to do this podcast because sometimes the Bible makes a lot of sense and is really easy for us to understand, and sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. And we want you all to know that we struggle with these texts sometimes too, and we hope that these conversations that we'll have about these Bible readings will help all of us enter into these readings a little better. So let's take a look at the readings for the sixth Sunday of Easter. We're going to do this in three parts, and we'll have a little music between the reflections. So that gives you a chance to take a few deep breaths or to take a break if you need that. We'll be here when you get back. Pastor Javen, you'll have the first reading for us today. Why don't you give us a little background? So this reading is from Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. We've been reading from the book of Acts as our first reading all through the season of Easter. And we said the very first week that Acts begins with Jesus telling his disciples shortly after the resurrection, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts kind of follows that outline. It starts in and around Jerusalem, then it spreads into Judea and Samaria. And now we're in the part of Acts. This reading from today is from the part of Acts that's really where the gospel begins to make its way into the wider world. And today's reading then takes us into what was then known as sort of the ends of the earth, deep into the heart of the Roman Empire. Pastor Bradley, would you read this for us? Sure. Acts 16, verses 9 through 15. During the night, Paul had a vision There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place for prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Thank you, Pastor Bradley. So the first thing that struck me about this reading today as I was preparing for the podcast was just what a bold and risky decision it was for Paul to follow this whim. I guess it wasn't really a whim. It was a vision, which I guess is 
just as risky and bold to have a vision that you're supposed to take the gospel to this foreign place. And then just it says he immediately got up and went and did that. For me, I'm so I'm someone who likes to follow the safe and easy and well-known path. I'm really in awe of entrepreneurial types who have a vision and just follow it. I am not that way. I'm someone who likes to know exactly the path and I will do that path the very best I can. Um, but I, I don't think of myself as someone who just follows um, bold new visions. And so for me, this is such a challenging text because it's it's totally outside of my comfort zone. As a pastor, it makes me think about what are the bold and risky things that we need to be doing in the church to lead the church into the 21st century, when especially at a time when the old models of ministry aren't really cutting it anymore. I feel kind of anxious about what that means for us as pastors and for the church. Thinking, Maybe they'll make us do a podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. They did not train us for this. Right. Um, but I just think there's a lot of a lot of the well-worn, you know, the things that we all know about how to do ministry just aren't really working anymore. And I'm really in awe of some of the entrepreneurial type pastors in our midst. We call them mission developers who are out kind of starting new churches and not just traditional congregations, but doing really outside the box kinds of ministry. And that's so not my wheelhouse. And I'm grateful for the people who are doing that. And um, and I wonder for everyone listening to this podcast, maybe the the question for you coming out of this text is what's the bold and risky thing in your own life that you're being called to follow for the sake of bringing love and justice into the world in new ways? I was thinking while you were talking about the kind of bold, courageous act and what you were saying about yourself is – but you've brought spreadsheets and planning to our (laughs) – Staff, you may not feel like bold and visionary in doing that, but that kind of work actually has allowed us to do better pastoral care. It's allowed us to do some strategic planning and organizing that if we were simply living in the moment out of our the vision that we just had yesterday, we might not get to that. And it makes me wonder, like in these stories, Paul has this vision. Who was the one that booked the places on the boat? Who was the (laughs) one that said, all right, we can only go this far tomorrow and we're going to need a place to stay there? Who was the one that found the place where they went to pray? And learned how to pronounce all those city names. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) That kind of vision and boldness maybe isn't an individual thing, but a communal thing. Yeah. Some of us have visions. Others of us are captured by those visions. And some of us put those visions into practice. And it really takes all of that in order to get the boat into the new and the risky place. I also want to point out Lydia here, who is um, – it's just because it's so rare that women are actually named in the scriptures. But Lydia, it seems, is a a woman of means and a powerful woman in her community. It says she's a dealer in purple cloth. You remember maybe from an earlier podcast, we talked about how purple cloth was really expensive and it was something only the highest um, kind of class people 
at that time could afford to buy. And she's the one who's selling all of those things. And so anyway, I think it's important to to lift up Lydia here as the one who hears and responds to Paul and becomes a leader in the community in Philippi. Makes me remember, I feel like I heard someone say once that, you know, the early church gathered in homes. And so usually there had to be someone of means who had a home that could invite people in. Um, And that person was often the person who presided at the communal meal. And when she says, come to my house, she's not just saying, oh, come over and we'll have a conversation. She's saying, I will take a place of leadership in this community and that she becomes the presiding minister for the church in this place. What a great image. We often stereotype the early church saying, well, or, or this culture in general saying, well, men had all the power and women would have had to ask their husbands or their fathers to do anything. Lydia didn't ask anybody. She said, why don't you come to my place? So she had enough wherewithal. Either she was wealthy herself or something, but she knew her place and recognized God was allowing her to say, I'm going to do this. We're going to have church now in my place. Right. And I love that it ends. And she prevailed upon us. Absolutely. The power is with Lydia. She has not taken no for an answer. That's right. right. That's right. Let's take a break. Welcome back. Our second reading for today comes from Revelation, actually two two little parts of a chapter, a part of chapter 21 and a little part of chapter uh, 22. We've been reading through Revelation over the last several weeks. Revelation was written by John who lived on an island called Patmos. This was a time of persecution for Christians. Um, We often hear of these early persecutions, and it probably wasn't large and widespread, but it happened in particular communities where the Roman government decided that Christians were a threat to the empire because they weren't patriotic enough. They wouldn't say the right things about Caesar. And so one way of maintaining order and making a point to the surrounding population that you have to obey Rome was to execute people. And so Christians were the subject of execution for the sake of maintaining what's ironically called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So violence is used to maintain the order in the Roman Empire. And so I think that's always in the background of Revelation because people were experiencing the violence of empire. So, Pastor Lois, why don't you read the counterpoint to the violence of Rome? So, this is Revelation 21, verse 10, and then 
verses 22 through Revelation 22, verse 5. And in the spirit, one of the angels carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there any more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thank you, Pastor Lois. This is one of those beautiful images that comes from Revelation. And it's why we probably keep this book in the Bible, despite all of its crazy stuff about beasts and lakes of fire and judgment, because there are just these tremendous, beautiful images uh, for what God's world is to look like. A few weeks ago, we went to Art in Bloom at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. We'd gone before, and this year, though, we waited until the last day to go, which was also the last day of the Egyptian exhibit. It was the wrong day <laughs> to go and enjoy art and flowers um, and, you know, just the beauty of creation and the beauty of creativity. The place was jam-packed. And what I didn't get to do, which I love to do when I go to the art museum, is to, like, sit on that bench in the middle of the room, you know, and just look at a a painting and let yourself just immerse yourself in the details of it. Notice all the little things and kind of let yourself be captured by it so that you also almost become kind of part of the artist's expression of it. And I think that's one of the ways I understand this part of Revelation is that John is painting a picture of what heaven is like. And it's for us to contemplate, to attend to, to look at, and to try to see ourselves as part of it. It's not a literal interpretation of what heaven is actually going to look like, which 
Christians have used these pieces in Revelation to say heaven has gold streets. There are, uh, you know, it's it's like a city and twelve uh, gates, twelve gates. Uh, but it's almost like a piece of art, and um, art allows us to enter into a different world and. Uh, we become part of that. And so in Revelation, always in the midst of the suffering and the violence that these people were experiencing, God is saying, I'm going to give you something that you can hold on to so that you will know you are always connected to something more beautiful than what you're experiencing on a daily basis. And even though it sounds so... um uh, impossible to imagine that this is real. God gives us this vision to say, but there is a reality. It's describing some something that's real and something that's right now is present, and you have access to that, maybe just through your imagination, maybe through preaching, maybe through some singing or something. But you can say that that world is what's right, and I can live in it somehow, even in the midst of it. I love the line in there about the um, healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree of life there are for the healing of the nations. When just a few verses before, it's like, you know, nobody else can come in here. Just the, you know, the ones that are not outsiders, you know, just the good people. And then, but the leaves are going to be spread out to heal all those nations too. So yeah. pretty. Well, and of course, in the first century, leaves were what was often used to make medicine. It's like the creation also is giving you things to heal disease and suffering, that God's provision is built into the creation. Um, talking about taking this literally um, in relation to building the wall on the Mexican border, I heard a... Uh, evangelical pastor say, well, the Bible says that heaven has walls mm. and uses this vision in Revelation to say walls are entirely approved of by God. And so we can, we can build them where we need to build them. Um, what he failed to notice in the vision is that the gates are never closed. That if God is building a wall, there is always access back and forth through that wall. So that pastor needs to go and do a little more biblical research if he wants to take it that literally. Right. There was no conception of a city without walls at that time. Like every city had walls around it. And the point here is, but the gates are always open and right. the nations walk by its light. Right. Yeah. Um, and maybe going back to something we said in, I think, last week's podcast, talking about our lens for scripture, reading scripture should always be, what's the loving thing to do here? What does it mean to love our neighbor? Well, maybe that's a good place to end. We'll take a quick break and come back. Welcome back. Our gospel reading today is uh, part of that same farewell address, it's called. Pastor 
Bradley introduced us to it a little bit last week in our last week's podcast. After Jesus washes the disciples' feet, um, the last night that he was with them before um, he's arrested, he preaches a long sermon in the Gospel of John, and this is part of that. It's um, actually a dialogue when you read the whole chapters 13, 14, and 15, the sense of the disciples keep asking him questions, trying to say, are you sure? I don't think I know what this means. Remember, Peter said, are you going to wash my feet? And um, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Philip had a question here. Um, another Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Ju- Judas has a question, and it precedes what we're going to read right now. But it's the question is, how is it that you'll reveal yourself to us, but not to the world? How is it that we're going to understand this? And then you say that the world won't understand it. What What does that mean? So why don't we hear what that's going to be, how Jesus responds to him? Javen, would you read that for us? Sure. This is John 14, verses 23 through 29. Jesus answered Judas, not Iscariot, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. Thank you. Again, we're reading words that come before Jesus' death during the Easter season. And I think that's always a little strange for us to say that doesn't sound like something you'd say during Easter. We, as Easter people, recognize anxiety and despair and this fear of abandonment or loneliness. We live in a very isolated time. So many people feel alone, even though there's many more means of connecting with others, obviously through the internet and different ways of being socially connected. Uh, people describe feeling isolated and lonely more than ever and the sense of anxiety or no one really understands me. I'm alone or I'm, I fear abandonment. I'm, af- I'm afraid no one will like me if they know who I really am is, is so common in our culture today. More people live on their own than ever before. In that sense of isolation or loneliness, I think these words are especially Easter good news for us to say Jesus never will let us be abandoned. That feeling, I think, comes comes to us now we're in the sixth week of Easter. And it's like, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was still on the on the high of Easter candy all over the place. But now I'm feeling a little more despair about that. And I'm looking towards the summer and just thinking, eh, whatever. In the middle of that, Jesus says, when you recognize the loneliness or despair of your life, also remember that I have promised you an advocate. It really means I'll, I'll be alongside you. We, we understand the Holy Spirit to be God's gift of promise with us. Jesus is saying, that's me. Where Wherever you feel the Spirit's power breathing within you, 
that's the presence of the resurrection. Always, again, bringing you new life. That despair or loneliness that you feel doesn't get the last word. Easter reminds us over and over again, new life gets the last word. And I think that's really the promise of the gospel, the promise of our faith, is that in the midst of things that feel awful or uh, sad or fill us with despair, God says, that doesn't get the last word. My love for you, my love for the world gets the last word. One of the things I was thinking about when we were reading it is the word advocate for the Holy Spirit. You know, this text, I think, probably comes because Pentecost is coming when we, it's our big festival of the Holy Spirit, the third great festival, Christmas, Easter, and then Pentecost. And so this is promising that to come. But this is one of those Greek words that is not easily translatable into English. Parakletos, I think, is the Greek word. So sometimes it gets translated just as paraclete in some translations. But um, it means advocate, comforter, comforter, companion. I think there's a new translation that uses companion. Which is good because it's really, again, to come aside, yeah. to come alongside. Right. That's yeah. what the para part mm-hmm. of the Greek word means. It's kind of alongside. Yeah. yeah. I had a spiritual director once when I was in seminary um, and we were talking about uh, – or I was talking about how so often I don't experience the presence of Jesus or, you know, other people talk about the Holy Spirit. And I was always thinking, well, I have no idea what that's like. (laughs) You know, what revelation. Yeah. yeah, Like, um, so she invited me to imagine sitting with Jesus next to me, like to close my eyes and literally imagine that I'm sitting on a park bench or wherever I am with the person of Jesus actually sitting there next to me. And she kind of led me on this little devotional thing like, you know, uh, imagine that he puts his arm around you. How do you – how does that make you feel? There was something about the concreteness of that practice. And I think what she was trying to do is to say we get to play a part in imagining what Jesus and the Holy Spirit is for us. But we have to kind of take some time to figure that out and to think about it. It doesn't just come naturally. Well, and I think it it doesn't always come again as some like big, clear revelation. Here's Jesus showing me exactly what to do. But um, if you remember the story, an Easter story of the disciples walking along the road on Easter day and, and they're walking back to their village, really confused. And it says Jesus walks alongside them. And that, that image of what if just all of a sudden in the midst of our questions or feeling abandoned or feeling like, I don't know, I don't think God comes to me. I'm not sure. What if Jesus is just kind of walking along right then? And, and I think that what they say is, didn't it feel like our hearts were burning within us? Mm -hmm. Like it's not always like you immediately know, oh, this is the Holy Spirit, but it's some sort of feeling that in retrospect you realize, oh, wow, that was something. I remember I went on some retreats in high school um, with my church, some youth retreats and different things. And um, I remember at various points being just really overcome with emotion in the midst of that. And I remember telling myself, I think that's when the Holy Spirit is at work, when like 
my experience of love is so powerful that I'm sort of overcome with emotion. Like, I'm going to pay attention to that and recognize that that's when the Holy Spirit is up to something. And for a long time, it was like I would go to church and sometimes I'd hear a beautiful phrase in a sermon that would sort of get me choked up or singing a song or something, just these kind of mundane things that would happen in my life, but where I felt something tug at me and I kind of got emotional about it. That was when I I chose to see that as the Holy Spirit doing something inside me. And I, I still kind of feel that way. Well, why don't we end there? We're interested to hear from you what you think all of this means. We hope that you'll drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. We want to thank Paul Friesen Carper, Gloria Day's assistant music director, for providing the music that you heard on the podcast today. We hope that you'll join us for worship every Sunday, now in the summer, either at 8.15 or 10 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.